Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with our guest, Paul Meyer, who's the executive director of the North Carolina League of Municipalities. And as we discussed earlier, uh, this uh, organization represents the 540 cities, towns, and villages that are in- incorporated under the state of North Carolina's law. And uh, uh, Paul, you've been in this job now since, uh, two, what, 2009? You, you joined actually as a legal counsel in 2009. How long have you actually been running the organization? I've been the director since 2014. So uh, uh, it's amazing how quickly time flies. And uh, um, I remember the first time I was on this program uh, right after that happened. And uh, it's hard to believe that that was seven years ago. Um, a lot's happened since then. And obviously, you know, here we are coming out of, you know, right in the middle of COVID and sort of dealing with all of this. Um, and obviously, uh, we never anticipated that North Carolina cities would get $1.3 billion in federal support uh, to deal with COVID relief. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, I never imagined in my career we'd see anything like this. And hopefully, our city leaders are taking full advantage and investing in their communities in ways that will, uh, that will have lasting impact. Now, uh, you know, you, you uh, in your resume, you also, of course, worked for the North, Car- North Carolina Association of County Commissioners for more than 10 years. So you've seen uh, North Carolina both from the municipality point of view and also the county point of view. And there are many issues on which uh, the two of these organizations work hand in glove. And then, of course, there's some areas of conflict where you uh, have to get together and discuss and see what's best for everybody. Because as we said earlier, Everybody that's in a city is also in a county, so there's there is overlapping responsibilities for sure. Uh, what what made what uh, made you get interested after you left Wake Forest and Campbell University at getting into this type of work? Well, it really came through an uh, internship. Uh, I spent a summer down at the General Assembly, and uh, uh, I, I I definitely got bitten by the bug. I mean, it was uh, it was clear that. The political junkie that was already in me just uh, got fired up sitting there listening to uh, folks really working through public policy decisions, trying to make the best choices for all North Carolinians. And um, you know, the idea that uh, elected people at the local level, you know, those are the folks that really are impacting your day to day in ways that are significant. State government has an impact but it's your locally elected county commissioners and city council members that really have the direct impact. When I came to the league, of course, I saw the light because it's the mayors and the city council members that have the greatest impact on, on our lives. And uh, they're, the, they're the folks that are really out there on the front lines getting it done every day. Um, but it, uh, I think it was just a blend of, uh, of, of political curiosity and the desire to see to see things improve and change. I think that's what did it. And it's been a, it's been a heck of a, heck of a run. Well, then we mentioned the 540 cities and towns and villages, but there's quite a lot of difference in those towns. There's a lot of difference between, uh, you, you said uh, Canita a few moments ago, most people who are not in North Carolina would say that's Kanto, but, but it's Canita. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks like Kanto, so I mean, why not? Yes. But uh, uh, but there's a lot of difference between the smaller towns and cities like uh, Raleigh and Charlotte and Greensboro and so forth. How do you balance that all? How how do you decide 
because I'm sure from time to time there's some conflict there. It's uh, the diversity of the municipalities is the beauty of what this is. We have 550 cities, uh, 400 of which have under uh, 5,000 population, which leaves 150, obviously, with more than 5,000 population. And uh, the, the types of things that cities do varies based on typically the population of the municipality. And so uh, we have six cities that have over 200,000 population. They're in the, the services that they provide are vastly different than, than the balance of our membership. And um, I guess the great news is the mayors and council members that I work for 99.5% of the time agree on what should happen and what's best for their local areas. Um, but one, and, and when they don't agree, you know, it's not that fun and we have to work through that. Um, but these people are so, they're so publicly minded uh, that, that more often than not, they can sit there and look at the situation and make the decision that makes the best sense for everybody. And um, uh, it's important to know that the league itself is a non-partisan non organization. Um, most of the municipal officials are elected nonpartisan in our state. We have a handful of communities that do have a partisan election, but the vast majority do not. And so when they're making decisions, it's not driven by national politics uh, or any other type of um, outside influence. It really is how do we create and maximize the vision for our community that we want. And it, it is in fact in that diversity that we see the maximum economic possibility across the state. You don't want Asheville to be the same as Cary. You don't want Cary to be the same as Canada. You don't want Canada to be the same as Charlotte. And so, um, because everybody wants to live in a place that they feel comfortable and that, that they can connect with. And that's, that's the beauty of the league. It's, it's, uh, everybody's different, but everybody's kind of pushing for the same thing, which was, which is economic competitiveness in the global economy. How about giving us a quick civic lesson, uh, sort of a review? A lot of folks already know these things, but why not uh, sort of put it in perspective? Where do the cities get their money and where does the county get their money? So the, uh, the municipalities are funded in two different ways, or actually in multiple ways, but uh, the vast majority of the municipal dollars come from property tax. The property tax is actually the only tax, is the only revenue source that the municipal governments can control at this point. They set, they set the tax rate within their municipality. The second sort of bucket for, um, for municipalities is, is, is the sales tax. It's the local share of the sales tax. And this is an area where we're in conflict with county government because even though 80% of the retail sales in North Carolina emanate from within city boundaries, the cities themselves only get 32% of the sales tax dollars. The county governments, quite honestly, uh, uh, they just, the, the way it's allocated, they just get a, a, a disproportionate share of that money because those retail sales and a lot of that economic activity rides on the investment of the city government itself in the local community. The counties just benefit uh, out of what I'll call just legacy structures in our state. And that's something that needs to change because uh, city taxpayers are struggling with, uh, because of annexation laws that were restricted, uh, 
and they also struggle because county governments get a disproportionate share of the resources out there. And so if you want your municipality to be financially strong, uh, you'd want that tax structure to change. Now, a lot of folks who have moved to North Carolina may not be aware of the fact that uh, uh, if you go back maybe 40 or 50 years ago, you basically had in most areas, two school systems. You had a city school system and a county school system. There's been a great deal of consolidation there. Are there still cities that have a school uh, system? Uh, so this is kind of a misnomer. There are, there are city school systems, but they're not actually run by the city. So there are, I believe, and I'm getting a little bit beyond my pay grade here, but I think there are 115 school systems. So there are, I believe, are 15 or so city-based school systems. But those school systems, again, are not run by the city. It's just a system that exists that is sort of with, within the municipal boundary, but, the, but it's run by a board of education, not, uh, not, not by the city government itself. And you're correct, there's been tons of consolidation into county level school systems across most of our state. Uh, a lot of that happened in the 80s, 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, and again, they're just leaving us with a small number of uh, city-centric uh, city school systems. Here's a question I've been wanting to ask for a long time and always fail to remember it when you're on. We've got a number of cities in North Carolina that actually fall in two different counties. Uh, that's got to be uh, uh, <laughs> that's got to be a mess. Uh, how do they work that out? So yeah, we do have cities that uh, I think Rocky Mountain is one, right? Whose boundaries, yeah, uh, uh, lie in uh, in multiple counties, and that's as a result of annexation. So let's just use the town of Cary for example. Uh, they, I, be, I believe, carry is in multiple counties, and that is because they grew over time and through both voluntary and involuntary annexation, their, their boundaries extended outside of Wake County. I think they're in Chatham County, uh, or maybe Durham County in certain portions. And um, this complicates some of those tax distribution issues that we were talking about earlier. Uh, in and of itself, though, it's not a, it's not necessarily a problem. It's just uh, it, it definitely impacts the taxing structure and it certainly affects um, when we have elections for, say, county countywide bonds or some countywide authorization. Voters in those cities are affected differently. So it, it creates some of those some confusion in that area. We touched on this earlier, and that is the population drain in some smaller communities. This is getting to be more and more of a serious problem, especially uh, as communities grow smaller and smaller, their tax base grows smaller, have less money, and yet they have the same needs, uh, the same budget requirements that they once had. Um, what's going to be the ultimate solution there? Where, where does that... Uh, where is the happy ending there? <laughs> that is a great and really, uh, I don't know if there's a happy ending, but there is an ending. And uh, this is a really tough question. Uh, we have, of our 550 cities, uh, we have probably 100 cities that are sitting on a, a watch list on the uh, state treasurer's office. 
These are financially challenged communities. These are communities that struggle to maintain their fiscal integrity uh, and to comply with a lot of the basic financing laws. And it's because they've, they've gone from reasonably large municipalities to relatively small in short periods of time, be it loss of jobs, outsourced manufacturing throughout the 80s and 90s. Um, these communities are struggling and, um, and yet still have, in many cases, a water or a wastewater system that was built for an industry that is no longer there. And so what do you do? Back to the viable utility fund. We need a way to be able to take those utilities and push them somewhere else, whether it be county government or neighboring municipality. Um, but this is a real challenge. And what do you do uh, when a community kind of reaches the end of its natural life? Um, there's a bill at the state legislature right now that would create what's called an, an historic charter. In other words, rather than the charter of the town be just taken away, it transitions it to a, uh, I would call it more of a mothballed status. So you may still have a city council in place that controls a small number of things, but for the most part, that town, um, many of its powers are transitioned elsewhere, whether it be state government or county government. And this topic is being talked about more and more and more. And I think it's just simply the natural outflow of our economy that's been transitioning for 60, 70 years in our state. Um, we have a lot of, again, a number of places that were at one time bustling communities uh, that are now struggling to figure out what their economic futures are. And uh, at the league, we're doing the best we can to support those communities uh, because we believe everybody has uh, a future. Every, every incorporated town has a future. It's just a matter of figuring out how to get there. And, um, but you're, you're on a very important topic. Our guest is Paul Meyer, the executive director of the North Carolina League of Municipalities. And when we come back, we're going to talk about legislation that uh, may be being considered by the General Assembly as they're in session right now, and uh, the legislation that uh, Paul and his organization would like to see passed. And we'll do that when we return right after these messages. Well, Jason, I've got to tell you, you're pretty much everything this company is looking for in an entry-level candidate. Great. Your resume isn't quite what we're used to, but you've got a fantastic work ethic. Thank you. And I'm impressed by how you carry yourself. So, should we talk about the job? Uh, what? The job? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I have no way of recruiting or even meeting you. This interview didn't happen. It may sound ridiculous, and that's because it kind of is. There's a huge pool of talent your company is missing out on. Meet the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Man, we really could have used him. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. It's important for you to talk to someone about it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. 
A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with the Executive Director of the North Carolina League of Municipalities. That would be Paul Meyer. And he is uh, head of the organization that represents North Carolina's 550 cities, towns, and villages, both advocating in, before the General Assembly and also in working with them on programs that help them run their cities, towns, and villages more effectively. Uh, Paul, uh, we you know, the General Assembly is in session. I'm sure there's legislation that they're considering right now that uh, affects the towns and cities across our state. What are some of the issues that uh, are being considered that uh, would affect the cities and what is your organization doing to uh, promote their best interest in that regard? Appreciate that question. Yeah, they're in session and uh, here we are in August, uh, mid-August. This is the time period where the budget is usually uh, in full swing and uh, that's exactly what's happening. Uh, The House, I think, is wrapping up their budget today. and uh, something is happening this year that is highly, highly concerning for our cities and towns. Uh, the budget bill or the budget plan that's been rolled out is 660 pages long, okay? And uh, the budgets are frequently long, but this is, we're at a new, we're setting a new record for the length of this budget. Uh, so many dimensions, so many parts of this budget uh, are, literally special provisions that they have not been able to pass during the session in straight up legislative form. And so they've been smashed into the budget to essentially force a bunch of stuff down people's throats that otherwise would not normally be able to pass. I think it's important for your listeners to understand that this is a really bad situation, not just for cities and towns, but it's not it's really not good for anybody because um, there are pieces in this budget that have not been debated. There's been no open debate at all. Um, The process has essentially been short-circuited behind closed doors and people's lives who would be affected by these provisions have really had no opportunity to address their legislators in an open fashion or an open form. Um, Again, this has happened throughout time. This is not anything new. This is just a, this is just way, way more than normally occurs. And a lot of these issues in this budget affect uh, our membership. A couple examples of things that just, again, fundamentally haven't passed because they've been stopped. Uh, There's provisions in there that would allow billboards to be relocated uh, while eliminating all the local rules regarding those relocations. Uh, There was provisions in there that eliminate local stormwater rules that are designed to prevent flooding and erosion. Um, uh, even after you know, we've mitigated these things, we're now changing the rules so that it can go back and happen again. Uh, uh, limitations on fees for the placement of small cell wireless equipment on locally owned tele- on locally owned poles are being set which essentially forces taxpayers to subsidize the large telecom companies who want to stick these on top of the poles. Um, There are provisions in the budget that would eliminate local tree ordinances statewide. 
Uh, there are rules in there that would eliminate the ability of local governments to regulate short-term rentals like Airbnb in local communities. I mean, these are things that, you know, these are, these are regulations and restrictions and authorities that cities have to maintain the quality of life for the people that live in these communities. And quite frankly, uh, those rules get in the way of the business plans and business models of various companies. And so these things get loaded up in a state budget that uh, the governor will ultimately be asked to, to sign or veto. Uh, the state Senate will be looking at these provisions um, as, a, as the bill comes back to the Senate uh, after the House has worked on it. But, you know, again, it's really hard to set your local vision or what you want your town to be when it gets upended by a 660 page uh, state budget that's loaded up with provisions that otherwise couldn't pass in the daylight. And uh, again, your listeners just need to know that this stuff's happening in very significant ways um, uh, this year. And uh, you know, this is a tough one for us because within this same budget bill are a number of things that would really help the cities. There's, there, are, there are financial investments in the budget that would benefit many local communities. There's, I think, 500 million in the budget for the for the um, viable utility reserve that I mentioned earlier that would enable more consolidation of water and wastewater systems. So there's, you know, there's a lot of good in that budget, and then here we are in the 11th hour, loading it up with all kinds of things that thus far haven't been able to pass, and. Um, it's just something for your listeners to know, and uh, and I'll be quiet here. But it's it's a uh, uh, this has become very very frustrating for uh, for our organization uh, and for the city and the uh, the the 3,500 elected officials for whom I work. Uh, you mentioned the 600 plus page budget. What would a normal budget look like as far as number of pages? That's a great question. I think we're more like 250. This thing is way larger than normal, and it's just because these special provisions have been added in, and it's all happened here in the last week and a half. Um, and it's just it's just unusual. Um, now, is this in, in both the House and the Senate version, or just the House version? So you have the Senate version uh, that's gone over to the House side. The House is loaded up. These provisions, I think, mostly came in the House. It'll go back to the Senate. The Senate will not accept the house version and then it'll go into uh they'll go into a um, a committee process where they try to iron out the differences between the house and senate versions ultimately they'll generate a bill that will go to there'll be a conference report and that will be approved and then the governor will have to decide whether he will sign the budget or whether he will veto the budget we have not had a state budget to pass in the last four years. We have been operating state government off of continuing resolutions and left in little small budgetary pieces. We haven't had a budget to pass. It's been vetoed um, just based on partisan differences and a difference of opinion on a variety of different things. I think the last budget we had was 2018. So um, it's hard to run a, a consistent state government when you don't have a budget. So. Uh, uh, so I don't know what this, I don't know what's going to happen. I just wanted you and your listeners to know what's happening this year. Now, one thing that the general assembly, uh, 
might have been concerned about about a year ago. We would all thought that we were going to be looking for ways to save money because we all thought that COVID-19 was going to have a detrimental effect on the revenues in the state. That just hasn't happened. So one of the things that uh, both the House and the Senate are looking at is plenty of money. I mean, uh, deciding how to spend it is uh, another issue, but the, the, the availability of funds, it's there. It is. And it's really, you know, it's important that that COVID relief money get out and get spent and get used. It, it is, it is, uh, it's, it's a, it's just hugely important for local communities. Uh, it's important for the city governments and the county governments that this, that this flow occurs. Uh, so, you know, it, anything that sort of disrupts that is, um, that's troubling. So, uh, and again, it's it's we have a budget that's got lots in it, and then we've got it been loaded up with a bunch of other things, and it really it makes it hard on the uh, on the top leaders to figure out what what to do. And then we talked in the first segment of the program, and a number of people have joined us since that time about the infrastructure bill on the federal level, which is going to benefit uh, North Carolina in many ways, and of course, a lot of that will trickle down to the counties and the cities through various and sundry ways, that also comes into play here. Yeah, once that passes, that's a, that's a whole other layer of consideration. Um, I think that uh, it's also important, I think, for your listeners to understand that this COVID relief money, this American Rescue Plan dollars that have, that have been uh, appropriated directly to cities and counties, there's a time limit on how this on on there's a time limit on the expenditure, so it's not something you can we can lay around on and and do nothing for four years. It, that's not how this will work. Um, that money will go back to U.S. Treasury if it's not spent, and uh, and so I think it's incumbent on local leaders to figure out the path that makes the best sense. It's incumbent on state leaders to develop a path that makes sense. Again, this is historic. This is these are historic dollars. Uh, we're not. Gonna, I'd be stunned if we saw anything like this at any time in the rest of my career, certainly. And uh, and it's just uh, it, we just need to have a consolidated strategy. It's just and it's hard to well, do that. Holding, it needs to happen. What's holding that up? What's holding that up? The expenditure of those funds. Well, some of it has to do with the federal government being unclear about what the rules are. That's the first. <laughs> that's, that's a challenge. Uh, the state budget not passing is another uh, problem in terms of getting the, the money out the door. Um, so, and then there's local. Uh, we we have local governments that are indecisive about how to, you know, what to do and how to do this. So it's, a, I think, a blend of many, many things, uh, but. My hope is we don't need to we don't need any self-inflicted wounds in this area. This just needs to be one of these where the local communities just need to be the door needs to be open for them to do what they need to do. The state government needs to figure out a path and how they're going to spend their funds efficiently and effectively. And um, uh, if we sit here and debate 660 pages of extra stuff, uh, uh, that just gets really it just gets more challenging for people to get on the same page. Well, you've got lots of things on your plate that along with the resurgence of the COVID-19 uh, situation that uh, has reared its ugly head again. 
So uh, as you go to work tomorrow, uh, and by the way, we're taping this program on Thursday afternoon this week. Um, what's uh, what's at the absolute top of your agenda? I think the absolute top of my agenda is uh, just keeping our local mayors and city council members focused and optimistic and positive. We have seen record numbers of locally elected officials resigning nationwide uh, in the last year, year and a half. Uh, a lot of them are tired and are just given up and said, we're going to let other people do this. But the problem is, uh, as, as, as a slew of people go out the door, there's not a slew of people wanting to come in and, and do the work. And so uh, our job is to keep those people as excited about it and as well prepared as possible uh, so they can make the best decisions. Uh, I don't want people to cave in to the emotional challenge that this is, but I also understand what they're going through. So. Uh, thank you for that question. Well, thank you, Paul, for sharing with us uh, these very interesting facts. Uh, Paul Meyer, the Executive Director of the North Carolina League of Municipalities. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and we'll have another interesting guest next week on the same group of stations. See you next week, same time, same station. Have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.